This message was recorded live at Life Church Lancashire, a contemporary Christian church in the north of England. Learn more at lifelanks.org. Good morning. How's everyone doing today? If you do not know me, my name is Matt, and this morning I want us to think together about the impossible. The impossible. Now, what do we mean by impossible? There are things that are actually impossible. They are logically impossible. To draw a square circle, to find an even prime other than two, it's impossible. It's logically impossible, but then, then we have the, the physically impossible. To the best of our scientific understanding today, it's impossible. It's impossible to travel faster than the speed of light. Impossible. My wife said it was impossible for me to build a car out of spaghetti. You should have seen her face as I drove past her. The, the, the thing is... It, it's, it, it's impossible to explain puns to kleptomaniacs since they always take things, literally. But you see, practically, by impossible, we, we usually mean, when we, when we use the word, we mean very low probability. We mean improbable. We don't mean impossible. There's a man standing by the side of the road and Another gentleman comes up to him and he sees him getting frustrated and he says, what's wrong? And he says, I've been waiting here for ages and the cars keep going by. It's impossible to cross. And the second man says, well, there's a zebra crossing just up the road. And the first man says, well, I hope he's having better luck than I am. (laughs) It's impossible. We actually mean improbable. We mean difficult. We mean unlikely. It's like... Mission impossible. By the time it got to the fourth film, I'm thinking, he's done it three times already. How impossible is it? I fixed it for him. We mean difficult or unlikely. Adidas had a campaign a few years ago. Impossible is nothing. Do you remember this? And this came from a quote from Muhammad Ali, and he says this, impossible is just a big word thrown around by small men who find it easier to live in the world they've been given than to explore the power they have to change it. Impossible is not a fact, it's an opinion. Impossible is not a declaration, it's a dare. Impossible is potential, impossible is temporary, impossible is nothing. To which I say, well, get working on your perpetual motion machine, Mohammed. Obviously, impossible does mean something. But, but, but what Ali is saying here and what they picked up in their campaign is that there, there is things that are called impossible, that really are improbable, and that are really about a mindset, and that are really about that many people um, don't believe it will be done or it can be done, and therefore they never do it. We saw incredible uh, evidence a a couple of weeks ago because one man believed. You see, it was improbable. It was difficult. It was was unlikely, but somebody believed. Somebody had the mentality that it can be done and didn't enter into the idea that it was impossible. And that's why 
they were able to do what they did. So I don't want to talk about the logically impossible. I don't want to talk about the physically impossible. I don't even want to talk about the difficult or unlikely. But this morning, I want to talk about the unimaginable. That's the kind of impossible I want to talk about. The unthinkable, the inconceivable, the unimaginable. And to do that, we're going to continue in the teaching series that we've been enjoying here at Life Church, The Devoted Life, which is focusing on the book of Acts, which tells the story of the beginnings of the church. What happened after Jesus ascended? What happened? This is what this book tells us. And I think we're up to about part 10, but we are today in chapter 10. And I, I want to read, I want us to engage in this story and think about what the impossible means for us. So this is not going to be on the screen. You might have a Bible in front of you. That's going to be really helpful as you can refer to verses throughout this chapter as uh, we go. And um, I'm going to read to you as well. I might have a different translation from you, but that's all good. And it says in chapter 1, this is the story, the story of the impossible, the unimaginable. And it says in verse 1, that in Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion with the cohort called the Italian. Now there are two protagonists in this story. There are two key characters we're going to think about today that you're going to have to enter in with me. There's Cornelius and there is Peter. And we have just met the first character, Cornelius. Now when you read this, this verse, did you hear it? Did you notice it? Did you see what Luke was telling us? In Caesarea the town named after Caesar. There was a man called Cornelius. That is a rather Roman name. He was a centurion in the Roman army and he was with the cohort that was actually called the Italian. Luke is trying to say he's more Italian than this guy. He's more Roman than this guy. You know, you almost expect Luke to, to, to add on a few, you know, stereotypes and have this guy saying, hey, ciao, bella, grazie mille. You know, it's like, Luke, we get the idea you're over-egging it. It's probably even a little bit xenophobic right now. We get the idea. He's Roman. He's Italian. You've made it clear to us. Luke is saying to his, his first audience, this person is, is not a Jew. They're very much not a Jew. They're very much part of the establishment, part of the occupying force, part of the empire which dominates our whole world. He is part of that. He's part of that establishment. He's foreign. He's a Gentile. He's not a Jew. Luke is making that abundantly clear. But it does say in verse 2, something that we don't expect that we like we don't think will follow this description of this kind of person. Because it says in verse 2 that this man Cornelius was devout and he and all his household revered God. He gave alms generously, that means he gave money, to the people and constantly prayed to God. So this guy is a complex character. This is not what we expect. We don't expect somebody who's part of the Roman military, the Roman hierarchy, to, to have this sort of uh, devotion, this religious type devotion uh, that the, the Jews would respect, that they would live by, that they would call for. Uh, in, um, 
a lot of translations, it calls him a, a God-fearer. And this is almost like a, a, a term that could be used to refer to these kind of people. Now, this inscribed pillar is uh, from a place called Aphrodisias. And this uh, dates from around the 4th century AD. And this pillar has a list of names of members and uh, people who donated benefactors to the synagogue in this city. And the names that we see at the beginning are Jewish names. They're names we see in the Bible. They're names like Benjamin. And we recognize these people. But then there is a space, and then it says the, the God-fearers. The God-fearers. And then it gives a, a list of names which are not Jewish. They're Greco-Roman names, like Alexander. So there was people who were who were known as God-fearers. They weren't Jewish, but they were supportive of the synagogue. They were interested in the ideas. They were involved in, in some of the practices. And these people, they were people who gave money and said, I want this synagogue and the Jewish community in this city uh, to thrive, to be successful, to continue to do what it is doing. And they gave of their own money to this. These were the God-fearers. And this guy, Cornelius, was one of those kind of guys. So he's a complex character. He's somebody that we, in some sections of Judaism, we might be taught to hate. We might be taught to commit terrorist attacks against. We might be, be, be taught to, to call. We might be taught to um, participate in civil disobedience. We, we, we might be calling for them to go home, to leave. Nobody wants foreign soldiers on their own streets. But then at the same time, we have him living in the sort of way that they're promoting. He's a complex guy. And the story goes on in verse 3 that Cornelius has a vision. Around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he saw quite clearly one of God's angels coming to him. Cornelius said the angel, he looked hard at him, terrified. What is it, sir, he said. Your prayers and your arms have come to God's notice, said the angel. What you must do is this. Send men to Joppa and ask for someone called Simon Peter. He's staying with another man called Simon, the tanner, whose house is beside the sea. When the angel who had spoken with him went away, he called two of his household and a devout soldier from among his retinue. He explained everything to them and sent them off to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey, getting near the town, Peter went up on the roof of the house to pray. Now, if you don't know Peter, we've been meeting him so far throughout, throughout the book of Acts. He's been the main protagonist up to this point. If you've been in church the last few weeks, there's a good chance you would have heard about Peter. But Peter was one of Jesus' closest friends and associates. He was a witness to the resurrection. He was... Uh, now an important leader in this early church movement. A man who'd grown up as a, a Jew, uh, his whole life surrounded in that culture, but now uh, following this new Jesus movement within Judaism. And so it says that Peter went up on the roof of the house to pray, and it was around midday. He was hungry and asked for something to eat. 
While they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and a vessel like a great sail coming down towards the earth, suspended by its four corners. In the sail there was every kind of four-footed creature, reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then he heard a voice. Get up, Peter, said the voice. Kill and eat. Certainly not, master, said Peter. I have never eaten anything common or unclean. In other words, he's always been a good Jew. He's always stuck to the rules. What God has made clean, said the voice, coming now for a second time, you must not regard as common. This all happened three times, and then suddenly the sail was whisked back up to heaven. Now, Peter heard something that was impossible. It says in the Jewish law, recorded in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 47, that you must be distinguish between the unclean and the clean, between living creatures that may be eaten and those that may not be eaten. This was something that was uh, uh, common in religion since the beginnings of, uh, of religion in human societies. That which was permitted and not permitted, the boo and taboo, the, the, the sacred and the profane, uh, the, the holy and the not holy, the unclean and the clean, um, and, and, and this was, was something that uh, was an important part of uh, Jewish life and practice. And it says in verse 17 that when Peter came to himself, he was puzzled as to what the vision he had seen was all about. I mean, what was that all about? I've always known this is what you don't eat. And then I'm hearing a vision saying this is what I should eat. How hungry am I? Like, how hungry am I? Like, what is going on? You know, like, when you're really trying to be healthy, but it's just that day, and you've been out, and it's a long day, and you're driving past that pizza place. You're thinking, how hungry am I? Because even that is sounding good right now. So Peter's saying, what does it all mean? What's it all about? And this is a a big question that I want to ask you this morning. What do you do when something you grew up believing is challenged? Because Peter's in a place where he's been taught, he's been modelled, he's lived amongst the community where this is always the way you do things. And now, it's been challenged. So what do you do with that? I guess dismiss it. Ignore it. Shout louder about your beliefs. Attack it. Criticise it. Gossip about it. See, I don't think any of these things are are good ideas. I don't think we need to be afraid of it. I think when something you grew up believing is challenged, why not think about it? It says that when Peter came to himself, he was puzzled as to what the vision he had seen was all about. Then suddenly the men sent by Cornelius appeared, standing by the gate. They had been asking for Simon's house, inquiring if there was someone by the name of Simon Peter staying there. Peter was still pondering the vision. He was thinking about it. When the Spirit spoke to him, look, said the Spirit, there are three men searching for you. It's all right. Get up, go down, and go with them. Don't be prejudiced. I have sent them. What are your reasons to believe? You see, we all grow up within a context. We can't grow up apart from it. Our family the people who brought us up, the people who cared for us, the the educational institutions we went to, the towns and cities that we lived in, the people that we interacted with, the place that we had in society. 
it teaches us prejudices every day. Because it's impossible to, to live in human society without doing that and making those kind of judgments. But those prejudices that can help us when we're very small to make sense of the world can then be things which break relationships and break human societies and cause conflict and strife when we're adults. So when you, something you grew up believing is challenged, we need to think about it. We need to read about it. We need to talk about it. We need to pray about it. It's time to reflect. Somebody sent me an email recently and said, um, I don't like what you said because I've always been brought up to believe something else. And I just thought, well, that's a bad reason. I mean, is that all we've got? I mean, it's, it's sad, but... But when we hear something we don't like, we hear a, a, a different perspective, we hear a different opinion, we hear a different judgment, something in us, sometimes it, be, it becomes a physical sensation where the chest gets tight, where the blood vessels go red, where, where, we, where we start to get, we get angry or, and we start to worry and we start to say things like, well, but what if? But if that's not true, then what about this? And if that's not true, then what about this? Don't ask what if questions. Listen, if A isn't true, it doesn't matter about B, C, and D. If you're holding on to the fact that A needs to be true for B, C, and D need to be true, you're just holding on to a lie. What do you do when something you grew up believing is challenged? Don't dismiss it. Don't be afraid of it. Don't ask what if. Think about it. Read about it. Talk about it. Pray about it. Think about where it's coming from. The quality of the life. Jesus said, this is how you tell false prophets fruit. By their fruits, you will know them. It says in Galatians that when the Spirit's working in something, it produces a kind of fruit. Love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. It produces that kind of thing. So that doesn't mean we exclude people or their opinions because it doesn't fit in with our arbitrary moral constraints. It doesn't mean that because we think someone's a good person that everything they say is good. But it does mean that we consider the fruit. And it does appear to be important to Luke how Cornelius lived. The way he was lived was decisive in allowing him to, to break out and allowing him to receive this vision and this opportunity. So let's ask some better questions. Is this Christ-like? It might be what you grew up believing, but is it Christ-like? Is it Jesus-shaped? You see, we've all grown up with things. It, it might have been that you, you grew up in church or maybe in another religion and, and you were schooled in a, a certain aspect, a, a certain strain of Christianity, a certain way of believing things. It might be that you never went to church. It might be that in your village, this was the way people lived. It might be in your family, this is the kind of jobs people do. This is the kind of places people go. This is the kind of things they achieve. It might be that you were told not to get uh, ideas above your station or it might be that almost the opposite that you were schooled by the culture in this uh, quest for insatiable desires that you always want more and never find contentment it might be that your aspirations are too low it might be that 
you need to find out what contentment really looks like. It might be that your way is too narrow. It might be that you've grown up without boundaries. But listen, just because you grew up with something, just because it's been part of you, that doesn't mean you have to continue with it. But you have to be responsible. Whoever your parents voted for, whatever church they went to, whatever town you grew up in, you're responsible. You're responsible for what you pass on to the next generation and to the people that you meet and to the people you interact with and what you give and the presence you are in the world. You see, you can learn from tradition without being bound by orthodoxy. Different things. And what we see in Acts is a paradigm, is a pattern of what we see throughout the whole of Scripture. That actually that there's this move outwards. That there's this greater move towards justice, towards mercy. And what the Spirit does in Acts is the Spirit includes wider and wider and wider. That is the journey. So what is the meaning? Peter's wondering, he's puzzled. Well, maybe we've seen by now. It's not about food. It's not just about food. It's not about who, what you eat. It's about who you associate with. You see, when Jews eat one thing and non-Jews eat another, it's hard for them to have dinner together. It's not about who you eat, what you eat, or who you eat. It's who you associate with. So I just want to invite you to maybe go on the same journey that the people in Acts went on. The first leaders of the church, they they had to keep opening their minds to something bigger and something broader and see that what God was doing was larger. Because if we can think bigger, broader and braver, contained in what we now consider unimaginable, or we haven't even considered, is the potential for breakthrough. You see, that's where the future lies. You see, those who bring uh, incredible innovation are the ones who imagine things that we've not even seen. The future is there. The future is in what's currently unimaginable. And for us, that might be a relational thing. It might be a breakthrough in your business. It it might be something that uh, God has for you in the future. But we need to, to, to consider, we need to open ourselves, we need to be ready for what now is maybe unthinkable, inconceivable, unimaginable. Because that's exactly what Peter had to do. And that's exactly what these uh, first leaders of the church had to do. So if we think, well, that was for them, and now we're going to shut down and and stay uh, cloistered around our our narrow-minded beliefs, I don't think we've, we've really read the Bible as for the first time. I don't think we've really been faithful to the text. And I think we've been more faithful to our own tradition, perhaps. So it says that um, they, they have this sort of conversation, Peter and the, the men who, uh, who came to find him. And, then it, and uh, they recapitulate what happened with the vision. And it says in verse 23 that Peter invited these men in, Cornelius' men, and put them up for the night in someone else's house, which was really generous of him. And uh, in the morning, he got up and went with them. Some of the believers from Joppa went with him. They reached Caesarea the following day. 
Cornelius had summoned his relatives and close friends and was waiting for him. So they went from Joppa to Caesarea. They went about 32 miles up the coast. So they got there the next day. They didn't have cars. You get that right. So it took them a couple of days to walk there, to get 32 miles up the coast. And they went from Joppa to Caesarea. And it reminds me of another man who left Joppa. There's a story uh, in the Old Testament portion of the Bible about the prophet Jonah. And it says in Jonah 1 verse 3 that Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. And he went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare... He went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. And I just think it's really interesting that Jonah fled Joppa to run away from what God was doing. But Peter set out from Joppa to follow what the Spirit was doing. And I want to ask you, you're in a position today and what are you doing? Are you running away from the future and the potential or are you walking towards it? Who are you sent to? Because that's where you'll find your purpose. Who are you sent to? What community? What people? What opportunity? You see, purpose is found when we serve those to whom we are sent. And Luke really slows down the action in this scene as Peter arrives. He, he, he makes explicit a series of apparently trivial actions. They went there and then he welcomed them in. And well, yeah, we get that part. Like, we know that part. That's normally left out of the narrative. But it says in verse 25 that when Peter came in, Cornelius went to meet him. He fell down his feet and worshipped him. Get up, said Peter, lifting him up. I'm just a man too. So they talked together, and Peter came in and found lots of people assembled. You must know, he said to them, that it is forbidden for a Jewish man to mix with or visit a Gentile. But God showed me that I should call nobody common or unclean. So, when I, I, so I came when I was asked and raised no objections. Do tell me then the reason why you sent for me. And Cornelius gave him the answer and he told him about the vision. So Luke slows it down to say, do you see what's happening? Peter is going to cross the threshold. He's going to step into the house. He's going to have fellowship with the Gentiles. Do you see the significance? To us, it doesn't really seem like anything big. But Luke slows it down to show you, to let you know that something significant is happening here. He is crossing over. He's doing the unimaginable. And they said, this is why you're here. We want to hear everything you've got to say. If we were told to send for you, and you've spent a couple of days coming here, then we are all ears. So I want to read what Peter says to him. And it's a, quite a few verses, and the band are going to come up and join me. But even though it's quite a few verses, I hope just as they were really eager to hear what Peter had to say, what I've said for the last 25 minutes about the impossible and the unimaginable, hopefully means that you are, if not on the edge of your seat, close to it, to hear what Peter has to say. Because Peter took a deep breath and began. It's become clear to me, he said, that God really does show no favoritism. No, in every race, people who fear him and do what is right are acceptable to him. 
He sent his word to the children of Israel, announcing peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You know about this and how the word spread throughout all Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. God anointed this man, Jesus of Nazareth, with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were overpowered by the devil, since God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the land of Judea and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and allowed him to be seen. Not indeed by all the people, but by those of us whom God had appointed beforehand. We ate and drank with him after he had been raised from the dead. And he commanded us to announce to the people and to bear testimony that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets give their witness. He is the one. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell on everyone who was listening to the word. The circumcised believers who had accompanied Peter were astonished because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles too. They heard them speaking with tongues and praising God. Then Peter spoke up. Nobody can deny these people water to be baptized. Can they? He said. They have received the Holy Spirit just like we did. So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus, the Messiah. Then they asked him to stay for a few days. What Luke is showing us here at the end with this instance of uh, the Spirit being poured out on the Gentiles is what Luke does throughout the the whole of Acts. When when you see the Spirit, what you see is the Spirit moving outwards. You see the Spirit including the excluding. Uh, the excluded. You see the spirit going in further into new territory, spreading them out geographically. As Luke says, listen, this is for the whole world. This is for the, everybody, everywhere. And that's what Luke is doing here. He's showing us that the, this is divine initiative to include the excluded, confirmed not only by the facts in Cornelius's vision, not only by the fact that Peter's vision corresponded to Cornelius's and prepared him for Cornelius to come, but but also definitively by the Spirit being poured out. It's not about the supernatural events that occurred. We can't recreate those events. It's about the point that Luke is making. The Spirit is including even those you thought it was unimaginable to sit across from. So who's that for you? It says in Acts 10, I'll put it up here in the NIV, that when Peter began to speak, he said this, I now realise how true it is that God does not show favouritism. Only when you see God someone include, someone you have been taught to exclude, do you realise how true it is. How true it is. You can hear me say it, but when you see it, you know it. How true it is. So Peter says this. Well, given all that we've seen, he doesn't say this, but this is a pretext. Given that we've seen that these people 
they give generously to the poor. They revere God. They, they, they support the community of faith in, in their city. They pray. They're devout. They're eager to learn and to listen. They're hearing what God is saying. And the Spirit's being poured out on them. Given all that, it says in verse 47, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptised with water. It reminds me of the Ethiopian in Acts 8 that we heard about a few weeks ago from Kelly. When he said, here is some water. What's to stop me being baptised? So he challenged Philip, okay, I'm black. I'm from Africa and I'm a eunuch. So people like you don't welcome people like me into the inner circle, into the true faith. But given what you've said about what Jesus has done, what's going to stop me being baptized? And you know, credit to Philip because he didn't let his prejudice keep him from what God was doing. And you know, credit to Peter, because even with the believers who've gone along him, and I would think that some of those believers were looking and saying, what's Peter going to do about this? What's he going to say about this? Yeah, he's, he's given the message about Jesus. Maybe he felt that he had to be polite or respectful or he was fearful of this centurion. But how is he going to handle it? Where is he going to leave it? What's he going to do? But he says, nobody can deny these people water to be baptised, can they? So it's a rhetorical question that expects the answer no, but the existence of this question implies that some present wanted to say yes. They wanted to say, well, yes, we still have reasons to exclude. So I think in this chapter and in this message there's much for us to think about there's things that can impact your life there's there's things that can uh, impact the decisions you make your creativity your imagination to actually move into what's unimaginable I, I think that that can be helpful for all of us discover more about us at lifelines.org and stay inspired by subscribing to the podcast via itunes thanks for listening